The future is really all about empowering individuals to have a better understanding sooner of what they can be doing to improve their health, but having more of like an operating system that directs that. Welcome to Healthy Conversations. I'm Dr. Daniel Kraft in Healthy Conversation today with Brad Bostic, who's the founder, chairman, and CEO of HC1. So Brad, you're a technologist, entrepreneur, data scientist. We're in a data-driven healthcare world, but we're still using you know fax machines to communicate and CD-ROMs to transfer imaging data. Maybe let's dive into the pain points you're trying to solve for today, and then we'll arc to the future. As you say, there's increasingly now digital information, but it tends to be siloed and in many cases inaccessible. And what I saw with lab data was that it was the most effective way to tell a comprehensive story about what was going on with patients. I was very fortunate to have a mentor early in my career who was a very entrepreneurial surgeon. I was dating his daughter at the time, and now I've been married to her for 25 years. So it's, uh, he would share with me back in the late 90s how he saw this need to move to a more value-based model and that we really were in a situation that was not sustainable financially if we didn't get that done. And so I went to work for Ernst & Young doing healthcare consulting and saw a lot of how things were working and, and how things weren't working. Around that time in the late 90s, my mom ended up getting sick with stage four cancer, and I saw the firsthand issues that resulted when healthcare was disconnected as it was. That was kind of what lit the fuse for me. And from there, I got into healthcare interoperability, looking to do a better job of bringing data together and common health records. Fast forward to today, where we're focusing on how you can transform healthcare by ensuring the right patient gets the right diagnosis through precision testing, and then ultimately on the right medication. So it's been quite a journey. Everything in healthcare, I think, is at a minimum a 10-year overnight success. How do you try to solve it to make it more precise and personalized? If the data you're looking to leverage is not digitized consistently, you're in a losing proposition. And so I zeroed in on what can we do to be the best in the world at constructing these longitudinal patient profiles. Now, setting out to do that, it sounded like it would be easier than it has been. A CBC generated in one lab is different than one in another lab. There are different analytes that are used, different instruments. And so a big part of what HC1 has cracked the code on is using machine learning to harmonize and make sense of all of this lab diagnostic data at scale and then zero in on where there are risk signals that say this individual patient is getting over-tested, this is wasteful, or more importantly, this patient has certain tests that should be done that haven't been done. So in that example, physicians aren't looking for more computers to try to enter data into. You know, heck, when you're in medical school and you do six months worth of you know, work on what lab testing is about, and then you fast forward 15, 20 years, there's no way to keep up with all of the latest, greatest, best and stay on top of what's going on with patients. So just bringing that component of, as you put it, the arc into the equation is something that has been incredibly transformational where we're actually impacting lives every day for millions of people. So you mentioned a key word for clinicians, which is workflow. And often the workflow is the, hit the easy button, hit the whole panel of tests or not even know what's best. So either over or under test. 
Can you give us an example of how in the workflow platforms you built, you help clinicians choose the right test to move the needle? There are really two levels to that. One is just a system-wide lab stewardship level where you've got chief medical officers that need to minimize clinical variation. People who are in administration and health systems, they generally will be like, yeah, we're already doing a great job with how we're doing our testing. And we say, that's fine. Let us go ahead and plug our system in, though. And invariably, what happens is you'll start seeing that, for example, in inpatient settings, you've got repeat normal tests that are just on a standing order that are run every day. Doesn't it seem like that would be pretty easy to eliminate, but it's kind of rampant. That also exposes patients to potential infection. That's unnecessary. There's a lot of negative to that. And proactively from a precision population health level, identifying those patients that aren't even coming in for a care episode who have needs like, hey, I've identified this person has an elevated A1C, they're pre-diabetic. If you just stay on top of that, you can manage it. Unfortunately, a lot of those folks don't ever show up again until they land in the ER having some kind of a crisis. Both sides, you know, the bigger picture lab stewardship analytics, driving the best practices in an objective way, as well as the clinical decision support that injects those kinds of signals into the EHR workflow, those are equally important and they kind of need each other. Right. So it can be as simple as in my inpatient experience, CBC every other day and Chem 20 every day, which may not be indicated, but it sort of ends up being stuck in the record. The other challenges synthesizing all that information. And obviously now we have the multi-omic age. Can you touch upon how do you help the clinician and caregivers make sense of these new fragments of data that might come from very different sorts of lab tests? Rather than experimenting on humans with respect to what the tests are that you run or what the medications are that you try, if we can bring together the most comprehensive view of the individual where it's truly their digital twin, the computer, the system, especially with all this cloud compute, can automatically run these different scenarios and zero in on where you have risk and get predictive well beyond what has been possible in the past. If you look at historically what has happened with Alzheimer's, there hasn't been a treatment at all, really. What that's resulted in is a lack of incentive to diagnose Alzheimer's because what do we do now? Well, there are some really promising Alzheimer's drugs emerging now that are proving to do well in trials. But the key is you've got to understand the individual early enough to be predictive about the development of that cognitive decline because these drugs can't reverse cognitive decline. They can dramatically slow it. There isn't like one single test that determines whether or not you know have early onset Alzheimer's. So what we're doing is using machine learning models against tens of thousands of records of historically diagnosed Alzheimer's patients to identify these signals that otherwise weren't noticed. And I can tell you, we've already identified some incredibly exciting breakthrough ways of, of seeing that earlier, becoming predictive, and then you can get ahead of the curve. So digital twin is certainly in the zeitgeist now. Is what you're saying you can now sort of parse that with your system to kind of get that early indication at stage zero that someone has a higher risk for cognitive decline and potentially put them on a statin for the brain as an example? That's the goal. We're by no means to the finish line yet, but I'd say we're making progress. 
you know, 15, 20 years ago, it would have been impossible to have this kind of horsepower in a cost-effective way. When I think about the digital twin, it is funny. I, I, I was using that term a long, long time ago, but now, as you said, it's in the zeitgeist, and I think that's awesome. And we need to eliminate the model where the human is treated as a guinea pig. Like, we should be beyond that at this point. You know, why is it that when you order a teddy bear on Amazon, they treat it like it's life or death that they deliver it to you on time? They gather all this information about you and that experience in order to support you better in the future as a customer. But you go through a healthcare experience where it may be life or death and you're treated like a number. When we first started, we thought lab was a great way to focus. And the feedback we'd get was, you know, why would you focus on lab? It's only 3% of the health system's budget and it smells bad in the basement where it's located. And the, you know, <laughs> then I said, well, no, it's not about how much you spend on lab tests. It's about how effectively you leverage the gold that exists in that data. Let's go back a bit to that sort of UI for the clinician. How do they actually glean the insights and take action based on them? What we've found is while we're data-centric and we're all about what are those risk signals that can drive an action that makes healthcare better, we also are of a belief that you need to have humans engaging in order to work with other humans to actually implement the change. If you specifically look at where there are these diagnostic gaps, it's not just about how do you inject some kind of an alert in the EHR for a doctor or a nurse. It's also just as much about how do you alert the care managers that work with the doctors and nurses and work to do the outreach to engage patients in the right focused way so that the higher risk individuals get the attention that they need and that they've got somebody really looking out for them. There are pharmacists who have fantastic knowledge and they can do a lot more than just counting pills. And if you power them up with insights and tools to zero in on those high-risk individuals, and then you have those pharmacists actually engage with the physician, hey, here's a change you can make to the medication regimen that is going to result in this person feeling better and ultimately having fewer ER visits. That human engagement is the endpoint of the power that happens behind the curtain. We're way overboard on expecting an EHR to solve all these problems. You need some way to document the internal clinical process and diagnostic data points digitally and, you know, code for things so you can bill for it. If you don't do that, you can't keep the lights on. But this layer of intelligence that constructs this digital twin and then identifies the signal Getting that signal in the hands of the person who could then advise whoever the prescriber is, that to me is where you start driving positive change that gets adopted versus just saying, hey, here's yet another computer you've got to look at. Absolutely. I mean, the challenge, as we've talked about, is a lot of this lab and other data is quite siloed. Do you have other sort of examples, oncology, cardiac care, surgery, where you've seen the digital twin model start to really make an impact? And, and where might that be in the next five, 10 years? Cardiac care is another key area where you can really do a lot of good. It just kind of blows your mind where you'll have an individual who's had a lot of stents placed. And recently we saw that with somebody who they were on their 11th stent. And it was identified that the medication that they were on, they had a genetic mutation that made it so the anticoagulant that they were taking didn't work. It was, it was literally just giving them expensive urine. And we know based on allele frequencies how common that is. But unfortunately, 
it's not a standard of care because of the way reimbursement works. In this case, it was determined that this alternative medication was something their body could actually benefit from. That change was made and then voila, you know, problem solved. I like dealing in the sort of here and now realities. There are all kinds of really amazing things that we can do in the future that would save the lives of people like my mom. But some of these just day-to-day issues like that example, we just fix those and you're going to move the needle on cost by billions, you know, instantly. Yeah, I love that example. I mean, I'm always harping around about pharmacogenomics. Where do we go between that sort of gap between what's getting reimbursed and the huge opportunity, as you mentioned, just in picking the right anticoagulant? Incentive drives behavior. And I think the move to value-based care through the direct contracting models and through what will become ACO reach here, effective January 1, where the primary care doctors, the, the healthcare providers actually can earn significantly more by keeping costs in check, but doing it by delivering more of the right care versus preventing access to care I had a, an opportunity a couple of years ago to work with a value-based care health plan that was inside of a very large health system. And we had some of our best data scientists run our models at HC1 against the testing and prescribing that was happening. And I sat down across the table from the CFO of this health system and she looked at me and said, if we do this, what's it gonna do to my fee-for-service revenue? You're not going to get pharmacogenetics when that's the mindset. But when you move over to more of a value-based model where it's every single physician can make 50% more money if they deliver better care, and they realize that one of the ways to do it is to make sure you don't mess up the Coumadin or whichever medication isn't going to work for the person, they'll do a $100, you know, which is going to soon be $80, which will soon be $50 pharmacogenetic test. So it's the unsung hero of healthcare because the diagnostic power that's there, if we can harvest that at scale, we can truly make a difference. Now we're all of a sudden having these leaps and bounds, you know, every three months where it's like, look what we can do now. Yeah, outcomes are going to be the new incomes. Are you guys looking at how do you sort of integrate now these massive data sets so it's synthesizable, understandable, and, and actionable? This is a multivariate equation. You do have certain standard, straightforward indicators of things like blood pressure or bad cholesterol or, you know, this specific diagnostic result relates to this specific need for a medication therapy. But then what increasingly happens and where most of the cost goes in healthcare is where you end up with that individual who's on eight, nine, 10, 12 medications that have been prescribed by four or five different physicians who have no good way to keep all of that in sync. And they literally are making the situation worse and worse and worse. The financial industry is a good point of reference. You can pull together all of your financial relationships in one dashboard and make it really easy for your financial advisor to see that. And it's more black and white, like you're losing money, you're making money you're treading water. Nobody has enough time in a seven minute office visit to go understand all that. So I think if the system could pre-qualify who is highest risk and predictive of that risk based on this multivariate equation, surface it as an alert, have it be multi-system, and it's never going to be one EHR. The answer isn't Epic, you know, runs the world. It just isn't. And then these alerts have to be smart enough 
to get you to focus on the things that are really going to move the needle. One thing I've been thinking about, and I've developed a little platform called Intellimedicine, where you could take all the data about a patient and maybe 3D print the personalized polypill with their aspirin, statin, beta blocker, Synthroid, vitamin D, things they might be taking every day or might even need to tweak. How do you see narrowing that gap between, you know, data to insight to action? Because again, alerts go only so far. I love that, by the way, what you just described. There's no chip we can put in everybody's brains when they're born to do right by themselves on eating perfectly and exercising all the time. You know, that stuff's hard. The future is really all about empowering individuals to have a better understanding sooner of what they can be doing to improve their health, but having more of like an operating system that directs that. And we see this happening with CVS and all these organizations that have local presence. They're becoming more of the quarterback on, hey, where do you need to go to get care? And then the specialists though, engaging and looking at adherence more holistically, I think about involuntary non-adherence is where you take the pills as prescribed and they can't benefit you. Maybe even they hurt you. Fixing things like that do a lot to bring us into the future. Right. You essentially want to take, whether it's the Amazonification or Uberification, you know, take something complex with lots of moving yeah. parts and have an easy button and have a user interface that can even be delightful and, and easy for, you know, a five-year-old to a 55-year-old to use. Right. So- just help me understand, how does HC1 work today? Who's your customer and uh, what's your most common use case? So HC1 set out to bring together the provider and the prescribing entities in one virtuous kind of cycle. First of all, people weren't getting diagnosed effectively because they weren't getting tested with the best possible diagnostic tests. And then once they were getting diagnosed, they weren't getting the best medication therapies. And in some cases, they were actually patients who needed life-saving medications that their physician didn't even know existed. So our customers really are on the provider side and on the pharma side. We work with laboratories that are independent commercial labs doing a lot of specialized testing. And then we also work with health systems that need this insight into how to ensure the right patient's getting the right test so that they're diagnosed effectively. Once somebody's diagnosed, it empowers the healthcare provider with on-demand insight into approved medications that can help potentially save the lives of patients who are diagnosed with rare disease. So you're really an insights engine. Well, we talk a lot about precision medicine today. We're really still in an era of relative imprecision globally for about the top 10 grossing uh, on-patent drugs sold in the United States over the last few years. They're only really effective for about one in four to one in 24 of the patients who takes them, whether that's an antidepressant or a statin. So it seems like we have a, a little ways to go. Normally when people say precision medicine, the person hearing that phrase thinks oncology. But in reality, 95% of people who are patients thankfully don't have cancer, but they have some other kind of a health condition. And diagnostic lab testing really spans all of it. You can actually sit and talk about the future we all want to be part of, but sometimes we overlook that the present is so full of just kind of base hits. If you just get somebody on a medication, they can metabolize. You can actually save them a hell of a lot of lifestyle and life expectancy and cost to the system. One of the things I've learned over time is 
you need to have a vision, but then it needs to be broken down into steps, right? So we just talk about right patient, right test, right prescription. And, you know, you have to figure out how to get a car on the road before you can figure out how to do low earth orbit. Just like with the genome, you know, where it costs a billion dollars to get to the first one, I think that this digital twin concept, it's a similar acceleration we're seeing, and we're really excited about where HC1 is positioned to help fulfill that promise, not only in the States, but globally. Are you able to start to crowdsource the insights from thousands of patients on your platform so you can better inform the, the suggestions? It's using that composite view of lots of different patients to identify these signals that end up having a high probability of predicting certain outcomes as that early warning system. But on the other side, the data they're fed needs to encompass the input from the experts who can curate and, and make the final call. Right. You can upskill everybody across the, the care continuum. It, Speaking about the continuum, a lot of you know criticism to some degree of, of AI and let's say genomic data sets is that they traditionally have come from, you know, Caucasian Europeans. How do you see the issue about data equity feeding the insights that these AI engines then generate? In particular, as it relates to medications, there's a heavy need to make sure that we've got the broader diversity of, of data sets to guide these pathways for people based on truly their unique qualities. You've got the data challenge as well, where I do see the progressive leaders in our U.S. healthcare system leaning into the fact that you can't use HIPAA and protecting people's privacy as a way to completely eliminate the possibility of actually delivering better healthcare. <laughs> you know, all the things we're doing on these models, it's based on de-identified data. But when you step over to like even the EU, where every country has its own unique privacy angle on data, we're gonna have to find ways to strike that balance. I'm all for privacy, but ultimately I'm all for a healthier planet and enabling people to live the best lives that they can live. In the next era, what can we possibly do? The only thing is generate longer life expectancy, higher quality of life. This has to get solved. And if you look at medical devices, that's another area that we're in through one of our health cloud capital portfolio companies. There is a massive surge of regulation around medical devices that is actually resulting in about 30% of the devices being taken off the market in certain parts of the world. It's kind of whack-a-mole. There's always something to swing at. And oftentimes the regulators are not necessarily recognizing our, our exponential age. And I've seen many examples of where patient data didn't flow and uh, the patient may have died with their privacy intact, but they might rather be alive and thriving if the, their right. data was shared more readily. I kind of hearken back to the Diamandis book, Abundance. And, you know, the subtitle is The Future is Much Brighter Than You Think. We've got this incredible opportunity that's like once in multiple generations to advance the ball. And it's because you've got access to medical information that's digital, unlike you've ever had. And you've got this access to compute and you have a collection of really intelligent, committed people working on these different areas of innovation. You put all those things together and there could not be a better time to accelerate in healthcare. If you just read headlines, you might be despondent, but if you actually are in the mix, in the front lines, seeing how things are changing for the better, I have no doubt that within our lifetimes, 
we will have new predictive models that allow us to get ahead of the curve and cut way back on people developing type 2 diabetes. Yeah, it's a very exciting time. And certainly COVID has been a bit of a catalyst to bring us into this health age. And the trick is to translate that into real action. It's also, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. I've run a conference for 10 years called Exponential Medicine. Now it's called NextMed Health, where the whole theme is, how do you bring people together to see what is now and what's near and what's next? Because often we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Any other closing thoughts you'd want to share with clinicians out there who are often struggling to deal with an overload of laboratory and other data? First of all, thank you to everybody who is in the care delivery environment. It's not an easy job, and and all this change, while exciting, also, I think, is accompanied by a fair amount of stress and and, uh, inefficiency as we make the change. I think it's a fool's errand to attempt to just perpetuate fee-for-service as a vehicle to generate economics as an individual who's delivering care. And I don't think you should consider value-based care and reducing care cost as something that can only be done by limiting access to care. Like that's the, the negative side of it potentially. Well, Brad Bostick, thank you for joining us in Healthy Conversations and to you and your team at HC1 for hopefully helping move that needle to continuously improve healthcare for all. <laughs>